0: When I was starting out in ministry, I went to, I remember going to a conference for pastors and church leaders Uh, down in the States. It was at a mega church, so picture just like astronomically huge church. And the focus of the week was mostly on outreach. It was how do churches uh, reach out to their neighborhoods, to people that aren't in church? Uh, How do we be good witnesses, share our faith with people that uh, are not followers of Jesus? And uh, it was a great conference, went through all kinds of different sessions, uh, teaching things, breakouts, all the stuff that you do. And then we came to the very last session of the conference at the end of it. Everybody was together and we're in, it's a mega church. So picture huge, auditorium and uh, massive high ceilings and the whole deal and they did the stuff that you would normally expect at a church or a church conference to do. We sang some songs, uh, the pastor got up and he kind of wrapped everything together with his, his final talk and then uh, we were coming to the, the very end of the whole thing and uh, we're sitting there watching what's going on on stage and all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see way up in the corner, huge high ceilings. It's like, is there somebody up there? and there was somebody rappelling from the ceiling on a rope. And I'm looking over, because they're going on like things are normal, and I'm like, what's going on there? And then I realize it's not just there, but there's somebody up on the other side that's coming down on a rope. And then all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of people, and I realize they're all dressed like ninjas. And they're coming down on ropes, and then they're scaling back up the wall, and they're doing flips and all kinds of stuff, and you're sitting there going, what in the world is going on? And then the music starts and it's getting all exciting, like something big's gonna happen. And then a bunch of people come in, like cowboys, and there's a gunfight that starts. Like they're shooting, they're fake guns, but they're shooting guns and they're like fighting against the ninjas. And then after that, a a biker gang comes in on Harley-Davidson motorcycles, not fake ones, real ones, driving right into the auditorium, right up onto stage, and then now the bikers are fighting against the ninjas and the cowboys, and then there's a marching band coming through, and the whole thing turned into an absolute circus. It was totally crazy, it was completely over the top, it was extremely entertaining, and you're sitting there kind of wondering what the whole thing is about, but it was very impressive, all the things that are happening. Meanwhile, explosions and lights and smoke and the whole deal, and this was the point they were trying to make after like half a week of teaching us about outreach, and a lot of the focus was this, because during the week, we were all being told over and over in our culture, one of the things, the biggest challenges that churches have in engaging the people around them is that church is boring and church is irrelevant, and so by the time we get to the end of it, this is the point. They're going way over the top. It's, it's crazy, it's chaotic, it's supposed to be, but they're trying to communicate this message. We should do whatever we can do to reach people with the message of Jesus. And if one of our biggest hurdles, one of our biggest obstacles is that church is boring and irrelevant, that's what people think, then we will do whatever we can do to remove that barrier so that people will engage and we can engage with them and teach them about Jesus. Jesus. Now, you can argue I'm not putting a value judgment in that kind of ministry and doing kind of that, and probably there's a whole bunch of us who come from different church backgrounds, and maybe as you grew up, because, you know, a lot of us have something in our background, and we went maybe to churches that tried to do that kind of thing. How do we make it super fun and super entertaining and super engaging? You might have a church background that said, hey, you know, we're not even engaging in that. We're just going to be who we're going to be, and and we're not going to try and do all the frills and stuff, but without getting into the value judgment, my point is, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, even fairly recently in the last 10 years or so, one of the biggest challenges in the church has been, are we relevant? Are we boring? Is there any reason anybody should come? And the last few weeks, really interesting, I've heard this A number of times I've read this, things that I'm reading, things that I'm listening to on podcasts, and over and over, over I've heard this message, is that where in the 90s and early 2000s, and in some places in North America, even to recently, where the church's biggest struggle was that people thought church was boring and irrelevant, that has now shifted. And probably the biggest struggles now for churches in terms of how we reach to people, uh, how we engage with people who are not part of the faith or not part of the church in any way, is that people are asking more questions like, are they effective? Are they authentic? Are they doing anything that makes any difference in the world? What are the causes that they're involved in? And why would it make any difference if anybody goes there, becomes part of that church? Is our neighborhood any different? And I hear this over and over and over and think, again, uh, in the last few decades, so much focus on, are we relevant? Are we fun? Are we engaging? Do people want to come? How do we do that? And you can, you know, decide how to engage in those conversations and to get over those hurdles and, and what to do and what not to do, what to focus on and what not to focus on. But our reality now, I think, in North America, certainly here in Canada, is that more people are asking questions about the effectiveness, the authenticity, and to be honest, if the church is a safe place for them to come and to be part of exploring their faith. And the more I heard about that, the more I thought the church, um, and this is not new, but the church often has had, you know, sort of a, a tough reputation in the world. And, and some of you probably feel that you come to church and hopefully uh, you find it valuable and it, it works and it's important for you or for your kids or uh, your family or whoever you come with. And in your own faith life, uh, but sometimes you might feel a little bit nervous about what that means for the people in your life that don't come to church. How would you feel about inviting someone, for example? How do you feel talking about your faith? You might even feel there's already some animosity there, or at least suspicion. When people look at the church and look at who we are as followers of Jesus. And the more I'm hearing about this, the more I thought, man, in the the midst of that, what I want to talk about today is how do we bounce back from some of that perception? How do we build uh, a life and a community, a community of faith that is resilient? Because in our world, we are facing so many challenges, and I think we all know that. The news cycle can be very, it's a range. You listen to the news long enough from sad, discouraging, anxiety-building, Makes you angry, maybe. You know, there's there's war in the world all over the place. Closer to home, we have uh, things like food insecurity and homelessness that are reaching levels, that are setting records that, that even in our city, um, the, the, the shelters, people who are trying to provide for people um, with, with food and, and different things, the food banks are seeing record numbers of people come and we're trying to figure that out. A lot of us are just dealing with uh, the economy and inflation and tough things. We have a, a world that's very divided, that uh, we always talk about how uh, we live in a free country and you're allowed to have uh, your own opinion. Except we're all scared to say what our opinion is, because once you say your opinion, uh, you know, there's always somebody on the other side that's ready to get at you. And so, what I want to talk about in the next couple of weeks is what does it look like for us to maybe take some deep principles and talk about what it looks like to build a resilience in our world. Uh, I think not just as individuals, but collectively as a church and how important that is. And that is something that I think is a, a theme that goes uh, into the scriptures over and over and over that in the Old Testament, we see the Israelites often trying to figure that out and making mistakes and then having people call them on those mistakes and then, and then talk about what it looks like to be a community that's really rooted in the presence of God and what God is doing and the promises that he had given them and how to live out their faith. And of course, uh, then we connect that with Jesus. And so I want to look at this little book in the Old Testament called Haggai. It's a prophetic book. And I love the prophets because this is really the job of the prophets. In the Old Testament, We have three big divisions of how the the Bible is divided up. You have the Torah, which is the first three books of the Bible. Torah means law, and it's some of the foundational stories of uh, Israel and who they're supposed to be and the promises that God gave gave them and sets them up as a people. And then uh, you kind of move on to uh, the writings, or in the the Hebrew Bible, which is a lot of the same books but in different order. Hebrew Bible, they're at the end, the writings. But you get poetry, you get wisdom stuff, and then uh, in in the Christian Bible, at the end, you get the prophets and The prophet's job is to say, Hey, uh, we have the law which established a people that were supposed to be living in God and, and some actual laws about how that looks. And then the prophets come, and what they do is they often say, We are off track. We're not living how we're supposed to be living. We're not interpreting those laws well, or we're not reinterpreting them well for our times. We're not living in light of who God is or how he asks us to live with other people, and they are kind of the shock rockers of the biblical genre. They're the one who kind of grab people and shake them and use really strong language and metaphors and say, hey, it's time to come back to live how we're supposed to live. This is very important. And in Haggai, uh, I just want to read a little bit of that. It's a really short book, just a couple of chapters. And today I want to start in the first one and talk about the the message that Haggai brings. The people of Israel, it says uh, in Haggai 1, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Here's a bit of background of where Haggai is coming from. The people of Israel um, had been exiled into Babylon. This is the worst thing that could have happened to the people of Israel. They had been promised things like uh, they could go into their land that God was giving them, establish them, build a temple where they could worship, uh, set them up as a people. And uh, in the the, the late part, the early part of the 6th century before Christ, you have the Babylonians come in and they wage war and they conquer the people of Israel and they take a whole bunch of them and they ship them out into Babylon which means they take kind of the best and the brightest and they move them away from their nation, their family, their culture, and they bring them into Babylon to basically reprogram them for, for, for what Babylon does. So think culture, religion, Everything's alienated, new thing. Uh, people just want to return to their land. They want to be able to worship God the way that, that, uh, that, that they were instructed. Um, and here they were in Babylon, what kind of worst thing. We have some prophetic writings about that. By the time of Haggai, what's happened is the people were allowed to return. So um, the, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persians had a king named Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great, uh, he said, All these people who have been brought here and exiled here, all these Israelites, uh, we're going to let them go home and, and kind of rebuild their their lives. Huge moment in the history of Israel. And so they go back. By the time we hit Haggai, we're uh, not quite 20 years, but more than 10 years from them coming back into the land of Israel. And a huge focus for Haggai is building back the temple. So the temple had been destroyed uh, in all the warfare and uh, they came back. And here what we read is there's a couple of interesting things. We get a whole bunch of dates at the beginning, second year of Darius the king, who is now uh, basically ruling the superpower of the world. The sixth month of the first day, the word of the Lord came. So just a little bit important, the first day of the month meant uh, in their calendar, it was the new moon. If you were in Jerusalem as a Jew on the first day of the month, this just sets up where we're going, where you would expect to be if everything was good would be on holiday at the temple. And there were certain sacrifices and a certain uh, prescription for how you worship that day and the things you give thanks to God and the things you bring. And that sets this up because, of course, the temple is not rebuilt. The temple is in ruins still. And so even right there, you go, oh, it's a new moon. Some people reading this, and if you really knew kind of the traditions and and where they should be, you go, oh, they should be in the temple. But of course, they can't be in the temple because they haven't rebuilt the temple. There's a major problem. And we've got a list of all these people who are in charge. Darius the king. We've got Haggai as the, the prophet. We've got Joshua as the high priest. We've got Zerubbabel, who's the governor, all these people who are set up. And then it talks about the Lord of hosts who speak. And the Lord of hosts is a title that talks about God's... Uh, God's sovereignty or God's importance, uh, the fact that God is in charge. And that sets up here, hey, just so you know, I know a lot of people think that Darius, the Persian king, he's in charge of the whole world. I know you're going to look up to the high priest, Joshua, and you are going to look up to Zerubbabel. He's the governor. I know all, all these people you think is in charge, but now stop and the Lord of hosts is speaking. Hosts could be a way of talking about angels. So Yahweh of the angels Or of stars, like Yahweh who controls the entire cosmos, or Yahweh of armies, so he's the one who's in charge, and he can tell uh, those who are working for him what to do. So here in the midst of who's in charge and what's going on, we have Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, who now is going to speak through the prophet to the people, and he says, here's the problem. The people are saying they're back in the land, and they're saying it's not time to build the temple, and what are they doing? they are uh, building and living in their paneled houses. Do you remember when wood paneling was a big thing? Like if you were doing a renovation, the first house my wife and I bought, uh, it was just around the corner from here. We lived there for a long time. And the basement was mostly unfinished, a little bit finished. And when we first bought the house, we went down there and we were gonna do some work on it. And there was a room or two that had wood paneling, reminds you of the 70s or something, all around the wall. And so uh, I had to take that down because we were gonna figure out how to, how to put up drywall and all this kind of stuff. So, I took down the paneling, which you just rip it off. It's real easy. And what I found was behind the wood paneling, just the thin wood paneling, right on the concrete wall of the basement was wallpaper that looked like wood paneling. And I was like, what went on here? Like, did these people go, man... It would be so good if we had wood paneling all through our basement. Oh, yeah, but it's not in the budget. Okay, well, here's what we'll do. We'll put up wood paneling wallpaper so we get the feel of it while we save up. And then we'll get the real deal. I don't know how that worked. It was kind of weird. And for most of us, this isn't a big deal. But for these people, wood paneling would have been a sign that you had some money. This was an ornamental thing, a decorative thing. Hey, we're really looking good. We've got the the wood paneling. And so the beef here is that people are saying, it's not time to rebuild the temple. We're not interested in doing that. seems like a big job. It's probably very expensive. And oh, at the same time, we're kind of, some of us at least are living in luxury, in paneled houses, ornamental luxury. So verse five says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. And I love this phrase. And I want to just... Kind of drill down on it today. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And then he lays out a bit of their situation. And maybe you're paneling your houses, but this is the actual situation for them. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Here's what's happening. And I read somebody, a commentary on this that described this, and I thought, okay, this resonates. When we read that situation, here's what's happening. Right in the, the background of what they're thinking is political upheaval, war. We've been through battles and wars, we've been conquered. There's still instability in the world. Food insecurity. People are trying to eat, and they are eating, but there's never enough. And inflation. You're working and you're earning, but you're putting money in a bag that's got holes in it, in a purse that just doesn't hold enough. You can never earn enough for what you actually need. And I read that and I went, I wonder if some of us can sort of identify with those issues. In a world where our news cycle is dominated by war and instability across the world, certainly closer to home, food insecurity, inflation, we're working hard, we're frustrated, Things aren't going our way. Some people are really, really struggling to make ends meet, don't have enough. And this is what's happening in these people's lives. And it's like, you came back to this place that was supposed to be a blessing, and it's not a blessing. And the Haggai is saying, and then you're saying, hey, we're, well, what do we do? We do what everybody else does. Well, let's work on our own houses. Let's try and kind of go up the ladder of, of, of success and of money and whatever it might be. And at the same time, you're ignoring the temple, and you're ignoring what... Um, what really is about the presence of God being central in your lives? And so he says, Consider your ways. That phrase literally in, in Hebrew says, Set your heart upon your ways. And someone's heart, we actually talked about this last week, the heart is, uh, for them, would have been a symbol of the center of a person's volition or will. It's the seat of your decision-making. It wouldn't be just your emotions, but it involve your emotions, your brain, it's your mind, it's how you decide how you're going to live and the decisions that you're going to make. And Haggai, God through Haggai says, set your heart upon your ways. It's try, time to pay attention to how you're living and where you're investing And what you're working on and it's not time because all these things are going on it's not time just to hit autopilot and do what everybody else is doing or just to to kind of whatever comes easy it's time to really set your heart on your ways this is a call to wisdom it's a call to practical smart living how are we going to order our lives together as a community what's going to be important for us to make sure that we are focusing on what is central in our community what are we rallying around? Because we're building who we are. And whatever we put at the center is going to dictate the decisions that we make and how we live. So verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. See, that's repeated, that, that this is the picture of God we're supposed to get in this moment, whoever else you think is in charge. God is, God is in charge. He says again, consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways right now. Go up to the hills and bring wood to build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. So what you're doing right now, you might be putting a ton of effort in, a ton of investment in, but you're not getting the return out of it. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So this is a call. His house that he's talking about is the temple. And why would it be a good idea to rebuild the temple in the middle of all this hardship, in the middle of uh, inflation, in the middle of people not having enough? Why is it that you should focus on the temple? Well, because the temple is where, for the Israelites, the concentrated presence of God was. This isn't just arbitrary, build a building. This was, this is your temple, and a temple, in Hebrew, it's the same word for a palace. It's a reminder, and the temple was supposed to be a a small picture, a microcosm of the entire universe, that this is where, this is the palace of God. That is, God is the king, God is in charge. We live as God wants us to live. And when we come into the temple, we're reminded that God's temple is actually the entire universe. And so it's where you worshipped. It's where you brought your ties. It's where they would collect things for people who didn't have enough, and then redistribute it to those who were struggling in poverty. It's where they were reminded, over and over and over, of the most important things in life as they worshipped. And the word of God says, "I want you to go and I want you to build this house that I might take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified." Glory. The word means uh, weight or importance. So sometimes if you say about something, oh, that's really heavy. Oh, it's really important. It means a lot. This is God saying, this is where I will be made much of. This is where God will be important. Another commentator talks about glory, uh, D.A. Carson, and he puts it this way. Glory is the visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure in a theophany. Theophany is when God shows up and reveals something of himself, and so he says glory as we look through uh, the scriptures is, is when we see a visible manifestation of God showing us who he is. Can I share with you a little bit about what that looks like in different places? You could do a whole bunch of study. Just a couple of quick passages. When God makes a covenant with Moses and the people back in Exodus, Exodus 24 says this. Then Moses went up on a mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So these people are looking up at the mountain. The glory of God descends on it, and it's like a storm cloud with lightning and a devouring fire. It's something that would drop you to your knees. You'd be in awe and reverence. You would know something weighty and important is happening there. When they built the tabernacle, so the tabernacle was the precursor to the temple, the permanent temple, so when the people were wandering through the desert, and so they could set it up and they could tear it down, but it was where they carried the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence uh, would be in the middle of it. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, picture this raging storm cloud where Moses is like, I can't even go in there. This is so powerful. There's something happening here. And then when they actually build the temple, it says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So something so awe filling, something so almost dangerous that you have to go, that's so important, that's so weighty that God's presence is glorious, significance is there, his presence is there. That's so what Haggai is talking about, is that God wants us to once again come to a place where all the things that we're doing in our life, and they're all good, and we, yeah, that's, we got to do that, but to order our lives around this presence of God that's so, so important to recapture some of the, the awe of God's presence. Then listen to this. It comes from John chapter 1, verse 14, and it's the opening verses of uh, John's gospel talking about Jesus as the word, which is uh, a way of talking about the wisdom of God, among other things. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the one, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, the temple has uh, in the scriptures uh, kind of a crazy arc of, of importance. You've got Um, God saying, build me a house, build me a temple... And then things go poorly, and you have prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah saying, this whole system's corrupt, the whole thing needs to come down, we need to destroy it. And that happens because people come and invade it, we talked about that. And then you have other prophets that come along, and when people come back, like Haggai saying, we got to rebuild, we got to rebuild. But why? Again, not arbitrarily, because of the importance of the presence of God right in us. And then by the time Jesus comes, Jesus is very critical of the temple, not just because it's, oh, you know, I hate my own religion. He didn't. He, he was a Jewish person, remained a Jewish person his entire life. I think probably appreciated so much of that faith. It was who he is. But he looked at the, uh, you know, the the disrupt the the, the just how um, off track it had got, how corrupted it had become. And so Jesus is also in kind of the prophetic voice. He's also very critical of the temple. But what we have here in the first opening uh, verses of John. Is the word became flesh? That in the incarnation, that is when Jesus stepped into this world, when divinity and humanity crashed together. We have beheld, we have seen glory of the sun, and you go cloud and fire and. Poof, but here we see God's glory not in fire but in flesh. Look me in the eyes. They could look him in the eyes. See divinity and humanity coming together? What would it look like to bring back God's glory? What it would look like to be a people who actually lived in the glorious presence of God? And the the gospel writers seem to indicate that we don't have to build a temple again, but instead to fix our lives on Jesus. Because in him we see the glory of God. The glory that the temple was always supposed to be about, now we see in Jesus. We've seen God's glory, his weight. His importance, his revelation of himself to us. We ask the question what would it look like if God showed up today? And the answer the New Testament gives us is Jesus, the Word of God, the Wisdom of God. So in Haggai, if you kind of read to the end of the chapter, one of the things, let's skip down to verse 13. It says, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message because the people had finally said, okay, maybe we need to stop building our own houses and we need to, we need to focus on bringing back the presence of God here in the temple. And the response is, um, God says to Haggai, I am with you, declares the Lord. Can you come back to me? I'm with you. The presence of God will be here all amongst you. In, I think uh, we see that in Jesus we see the the most clear version of the theophany, the visible manifestation of the glory of God. What does it look like to know the presence of God is with you, is to see Jesus. And so it is for us, and this is a massively important focus for us as a church in our denomination, in our Anabaptist history of, of theology and how we do everything that we do, is that we believe we will live in the glory and the presence of God and his significance as we follow Jesus. As we live the way Jesus lived, As we take his teaching and we incorporate it into our lives, as we consider his ways and we make them our ways, we live in the presence of God. None of us will be perfect in that. big part of his teaching is the the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we all need even to set out and do that, except to know that that is our mission, that is what we want to do. So here's my challenge for you this week. Uh, I, I would love for us just to make sure that we're focusing on considering our ways, and as I said, considering Jesus' ways, and then matching those two up. Where do they match up, and where do they not match up? And so for you, maybe it's this week, take some time to read through one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, take your pick. If that's a little too daunting, I don't know if I can get through a whole one, start maybe with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read what Jesus taught about all kinds of stuff. Read what he taught about anger and honesty and lust and how to treat people who are poor. Read about forgiveness and loving your enemy. Read about judging other people. Read about how he talks about God, oftentimes his father and how he related to him. And worship, consider his ways and then consider your ways. And I would love for you to talk about this this week in Life Group and and consider your ways. Set your heart on how you decide what you're gonna do Consider your ways. Are there ways of love, ways of generosity, ways of forgiveness and healing, ways of reconciliation, way of compassion, justice, mercy? Consider your finances. Consider your parenting. Consider your relationships. Consider uh, the way that you connect with people online. Consider your romantic relationships or your family. And then I want us collectively to ask, what would a community that glorifies God look like, especially if what we believe is true That we see god's glory most clearly in jesus what would it look like if collectively we set our hearts on our ways and we made his ways our ways so uh, as a church last week if you were here uh, we talked about uh, fundraising our christmas fund for the last section of the year and uh, some projects that we believe will help us do this collectively and i want to just go over those real quickly with you you can see on the banner or behind me we've got three projects one is we want to connect uh, and, and partner with some organizations in our city that are doing some great things in helping people who don't have enough right now. And so uh, we're going to talk and highlight these a little bit more in coming weeks. We're going to work with the HATS and the Gore Park Outreach, who are helping feed people, who are looking for ways to house people, and to connect with them over some uh, care kits for winter as the, the cold weather, even this morning, realized the cold weather's here. And for people who are spending most of their lives or are living outside, uh, that there are some really practical ways that we can help them. We want to get them essentials and uh, do some of the things that these organizations that are already doing so much. We want to partner with them, come alongside of them, and help them. Uh, we also uh, want to work on our building here because it's such a great tool, and we've got a very leaky roof that we want to shore up so that this building continues to be a place where we can meet and invite people and make sure this is a place of ministry. And then today, I want to focus on uh, launching Westside Burlington, and I want to say hello to those who are in Burlington who are meeting there even today. This is their second service in their soft launch uh, mode where they're moving towards a grand opening on December 3rd. We are so exciting. Behind me, you are going to see just some pictures. Even this last week, construction has started and we've taken the space that God has provided us there and uh, we've started to make it uh, more functional, uh, building a stage. We put up some walls uh, to define the spaces to make sure that there's a space for adults to worship. There's also spaces for kids ministry, which is so crucial and an important part of who we are as Westside Church and uh, to make sure that there's engaging space. That really work, and so construction's underway, and uh, we need to pay for that construction. Among other things, really, what we want to do is launch Westside Burlington, and we want to do this in a powerful way, and in a way that helps uh, all those who are meeting, even there today, uh, to be successful. As in the next few weeks, they're going to be inviting people uh, and bringing people into that space and worshiping there. And what is so significant about this to me, and about uh, all of us, whether we're in Hamilton or Burlington, partnering on this project to launch Westside Burlington? is all of these things that I think so many of us love about following Jesus that are so important to us and there's a range of things but it's things like making sure there's a community that's worshiping God a community that's following Jesus and in there that means a community that is a beacon of hope and forgiveness and healing uh, that shares the love of God to the city of Burlington and also of people who care about the things that Jesus cared about, which is the people around us. It's caring for the needs of people. It's living out compassion and generosity and caring for people who don't have enough. And all of these things that become so central to who we are as we follow Jesus. When we say, man, we want to launch Westside Burlington. We want there to be a church, a gathering of people following Jesus. It's because we believe that when we can launch that out, all of those things, all of the benefits, all of the goodness, all of the beauty of following Jesus, we hope. We'll be part of that community. And so we're very excited, and I just invite you to pray about that. Um, Pray for them, those in Burlington. I know you guys in Burlington are are praying, and you're working, and you're signing up to volunteer and doing all the wonderful things that's going to help this be a success. We're going to be inviting, and we're looking forward to the launch in a couple of weeks. And uh, that's just one of the projects we want to really emphasize here. Uh, There are so many things that go into it. The construction costs, as I said, that are already happening, materials and work. There's so many things that we take for granted, I think, sometimes at church, Uh, materials for kids Ministry uh, tech equipment microphones and screens and uh, even even just stuff to, to make the space inviting uh, we want to make sure that on December 3rd we resource a, a great grand opening there we invite people and that we've got good signage to make it easy for people to come and figure out where the kids go and the adults go and how everything works and so uh, we just would love for you to be praying for what's happening there in Burlington and uh, invite you to be part of the Christmas fund and uh, we launched that last week our overall goal is hundred thousand dollars above and beyond what we normally give and would encourage you that anywhere you give, you can participate in that. Uh, Just mark Christmas as the giving type if you're giving online or write Christmas on the slip if you're giving here in person by cash or check or debit or credit uh, just in the lobby. You can do that. I really think uh, this project is just near and dear to my heart because for all of us, whether you're a part of the Burlington community, the Hamilton community, it is an opportunity for us to place Jesus at the center and to believe that where there are Jesus-centered communities, God is going to change lives. God is going to do good things. Ultimately, to we'll place Jesus at the center to consider his ways is to follow him as he announced that now the kingdom of God is available and you get to be part of it if you want to be, to build his kingdom. And this is one real practical way that we can do that, uh, and I believe to invest in people's lives and the city of Burlington. And as we build this work, as we build this building, as a tool for this, we pray that God would continue to build his kingdom in all of the ways that all of us have benefited from uh, in in other places. Let's pray, and then we're uh, going to move on and sing another song. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to be part of Westside Church. Thank you. Uh, For those of us here in Hamilton and for those who are watching online and uh, are connecting with us in that way and for those who are in Burlington as well. And today uh, we want to ask you to help us consider our ways, consider the decisions that we make, consider the investments that we make, consider uh, the decisions in our families and our relationships and our finances in every area of our lives and to courageously ask how our ways and your ways match up and how they don't. Thank you for showing us your glory, your character, how good you are in the person of Jesus. And we pray that we would be the kind of people, we're not perfect, we know that, we thank you for forgiving us where we fall, but, but God, the kind of people that be growing in our likeness of Jesus every day. And we pray for this work in Burlington, that it would be a group of people that would be empowered by your Holy Spirit, continually being changed and transformed such that they could share uh, all of your goodness and love and grace and forgiveness and healing, practical compassion, mercy, and justice with the people around them. We pray that you would provide for everything that they need, just the practical stuff that is needed for the people, for the volunteers, for, um, for all the needs of ministry. And we pray, ultimately, that you would do what you do, and you would build your kingdom in and through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.